I be honest with you for a second? Just for a second. I don't know how you sit down in that song. You know, I, I used to be a little more uh, tame in my uh, emotional expression in worship. And, and I wouldn't say that I've become more emotional. Uh, I think I've become more realistic. I think the older I've gotten, the more death that I've seen, the more struggle that I've seen, the more addiction I've seen, the more brokenness I've seen. The more and more you live that, the more and the more you walk through that, the more you see that burden placed on others, and the more you see it, that burden placed in you, the moments that you realize how deep and dark your problems are, how your problems aren't peripheral, they're not on the edge of who you are, they're at the center of who you are, and then you sing a song like that. I used to tell my church down south, I used to say, if you, if you can't find yourself worshiping, close your eyes and pretend you're staring at an empty tomb. And tell me the emotions that come out. If you thought that guy died, you saw him die, and he was the one who was promising you change, and then he died. You saw him die. You saw him defeated. You saw him crushed. You saw him weep and mourn. There were people who were crucified who had more resilience in them, and yet our Savior broke. He broke. Then they didn't see he broke under the hand of God. They didn't see it was the burden of sin that broke him. And then you saw that one who promised you all this change. Everything, everything, you, every, all your hopes were riding on him. And then you saw him go into a grave and a stone put in front of it. And then imagine you walk up and the, or you wake up, you go to that grave and the stone isn't there anymore or it's moved. And you go in there, and the tomb is empty. And then these crazy ladies are coming to you like, he's not here. He's risen again. If you can't wake up and worship, close your eyes and imagine the empty tomb. Because it's not the job of the magicians, magicians, musicians, sorry, on stage to elicit emotion in you. It is the resurrected Jesus Christ. So it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me not to just fall apart singing that song because I know my brokenness. Right? Have you ever been so surprised by it? Shocked and alarmed by it? Where you let people down? Where you do something you never thought you were capable of? And you realize how deep the problem really is? It's severe. Sin is pervasive. It is a cancer. It is vicious, vindictive. And sin and death are undefeated. Seven trillion and oh. Until Jesus gets in the ring. Sing like that. I've seen you weep, cheer, cry when the Niners lose the Super Bowl. Right? I remember I've jumped in excitement so much my head almost hit a ceiling fan when my team won. Right? We should break that. Now, if you can hit the ceiling fan here, that's impressive. Right? But when you sing, it should elicit emotion in you, not because it's your iTunes jam here. Right? You're not on the Peloton trying to get pumped up, get that heart rate up because of here, but we sing truth here 
And that truth should elicit response in you. It's hard to sit and sing that song. Is it not, church? All right, so next week, next week, let's sing like we're facing an empty tomb, right? Let's do that. Let's do that. Well, I'm excited to continue on our series. We're in part two. That was not the sermon, by the way. We're in part two uh, of our series called God's Story. God's Story. And this is the big story of the Bible. We're doing it in three moves, summarizing the entire storyline of God in three big movements. And we're on part two. And part two is really the hard part. Part two is where the villain enters. Part two is the conflict. Part two is the problem. And it's going to be hard to really walk through this. This is, this is not going to be your favorite sermon. Okay? It won't be. It's going to be hard to wade through this, but I promise you it's essential in the storyline of God. And if you are curious about Jesus, if you are just exploring who Jesus is, maybe you're viewing us online and this is your second time with us, and you decided to kind of continue this journey with us, and I, I promise you that if you follow us all the way through, you will find that your story has a happy ending in God's story. But we have to get to this part. We have to get to the bad news. The villain has to come in. The conflict has to come in. And this is the part of the story that is a little disappointing. This is a part of the story that we really have to just run at the mess. The ugly truth of our human condition. And it's going to feel disappointing. I felt this just a couple weeks ago. I was reading a story to my son. My son, Dexter. He picked out a couple books. He said, Daddy, will you read to me before bedtime? Sure, sure, Dexter, I'll read to you. You pick out the books. So he picked out a book. Humpty Dumpty. Right? And I tried my best to move through the thick cardboard pages, right? And keep the kind of rhythmic presentation of the story. And I'm going to give you my actual reading of this and my response. And I think this is really tied into where we're at right now in part two of God's story. If you're not familiar, here's the story of Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. You can, if you know it, go ahead. It's fine. Humpty Dumpty had a, a great fall. Bad news. All the king's horses. Here we go. All the king's men. Here we go. Couldn't put Humpty together again. That's it. And this is my response. I don't know if I, like, forgot. I didn't learn how to read until I was in the eighth grade. So there's a lot of stuff in like elementary school literature that I don't know and all that, those things, nursery rhymes and those things. And I, I literally got done and I was sitting on the bing bag in the living room and my wife's on the couch and I was like, wait a second. That, that can't be the whole story, right? So we got this guy who's on a wall and he falls and he breaks. Nobody can fix him. This is terrible. Right? You're actually telling me that we're reading our kid a story to which it introduces a problem that never gets fixed? There's no more to the story. I looked it up. I thought maybe the publisher forgot the last page. Now here's the hard part. I remember being in college, really diving into my faith, just really getting serious about my faith. Right? I, I had been a Christian for about four years, right, and I was just diving into the Bible 
I was just learning, picking up how to read, so I was really reading my Bible. And I remember having this moment where I was trying to just study the human condition. What is the biblical description of humanity? Who are we as human beings? And I just kept studying and studying and studying, and for hours and hours, and I was enjoying myself. And then I got to the point where I just got so disappointed, I felt like I was reading Humpty Dumpty. Well, we sat on a wall, the pinnacle of God's creation. We talked about that last week, how God designed a, a plan for our delight socially, professionally, spiritually, our relationship to him, our relationship to others, our relationship to work, and God has a beautiful design, and it's the key to our delight. The key to human flourishing is God's design, but we sin. We have had a great fall, and then we break, and man, I started to study this book and its description of us, and I got depressed. More than disappointed, I got depressed. I had to take a nap. I was so distraught that I took like a two-hour nap. I was like, I'm done. I remember putting up my Bible and be like, I can't do this anymore. This is depressing. You may need a nap after this message. And I won't get a nap till after second service, so you'll get one sooner than I will. But I want to walk through our brokenness. When we move away from God's design and we sin, we move to a place of brokenness. And here's what we're going to find. This brokenness is pervasive. It's everywhere. Just as God had designed for us spiritually, socially, professionally, sin seeps into our life and destroys all of those fears. Our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, our relationship to our work. And it's so bad, we can't fix it. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put us back together again. So the big idea for this morning is this. It's very simple, and I think it'll stick with you. The big idea is this. We are Humpty Dumpty. We are Humpty Dumpty. I felt like it'd be a little light for you because this sermon's just going to be super heavy. So enjoy that laughter, because that's it from here on out. All right? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Here's what you're going to find is we're actually unpacking just the first three chapters of the Bible as we go through the three big movements of the Bible. Very convenient. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 8. And I want to show you how pervasive our brokenness, how sin leaves us in a place where our delight has been destroyed because we've abandoned God's wonderful design. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Let's walk through this slowly. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What this describes here, and the verbs here in the Hebrew, imply that this was a habitual practice. It was something that, that mankind and God did. This wasn't the first time it occurred it hints at the idea that this was like on their scheduled calendar. This was their routine. The divine creator of the universe was walking in the coolness of the day with the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve. It's wonderful. God wants to walk with us. But what's happened before? We looked at this last week. Man has sinned. Adam and Eve has sinned. They've rebelled. They've pushed away God's design, said, I want to decide what's good, and they've rebelled against God. So God comes to walk with them, and what do they do? They run away. 
Right away, we see the brokenness. There is spiritual brokenness. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They run away. Why? Why do they run away? Well, man tells us. Adam tells us. God asked him some questions, and we're going to get to those questions. But look at his response. God says, But the Lord God called to them, I'm in verse 9, to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I knew we had our appointment. I knew, I knew we were going to meet together. I knew you were going to walk with us in the coolness of the day, and we were going to converse, and we were going to have intimacy, right? That we were going to be continuing in the enjoyment of our relationship. Spiritually, we were going to thrive and flourish. I knew we had this appointment, but now I saw this appointment differently. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? He says, because I was naked. And I hid myself. Now, wait a second here. Has anything changed for humanity? I mean, not in Adam's reasoning. He said, I was naked. Adam, you've always been naked. Right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and not, this is a big word here, ashamed. Here's what's changed. It's not that man's condition has changed. It's not like he had clothes and they fell off. That's not what happened in the fall. Now he views himself differently. And now he's lost the ability to be intimate not only with his wife, but be intimate with his creator. Because now that he stands there naked, not that this is new, but he views it in a new way, now he's afraid to be vulnerable. And now he only sees himself with shame. And what does shame do? Shame stops me from being vulnerable. Stops me from living honestly. And that ruins intimacy. Don't look at me. What do you mean don't look at you? Didn't God create you good? Didn't God look at all creation and call it very good? Here's the problem. Man started looking in the mirror and only hearing his voice. He didn't hear God's voice say, you're good. She's good. Together, you are very good. Now he looks in the mirror and he sees nothing but shame. Oh, we know this. We know this. There's nobody on this planet who views themselves without at least a slight bit of shame. A slight bit of, no, 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 this part of me I cannot show. This part of me I must hide. And that lack of vulnerability leads to a lack of true intimacy because we are afraid of the gaze of another whether it be our spouse or whether it be our God. Sin enters in, and what does it do? It destroys intimacy with God. Now we run from him instead of run to him. This is the same thing that happens when God meets his people. After he delivers them from Egyptian slavery, if you know the storyline of the Bible, God frees the Jews from Egyptian slavery by all these miracles. And then he says, I want to meet with you guys on this mountain. And then God shows up on the mountain 
to be with his people. It's very much like here in Genesis. I'm going to meet with you. And then when God comes, he shakes the mountain and he speaks in thunder. And the people say, no, 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 no. We're not, no, we're, no, we're fine. We don't want to meet with you. We're afraid of you. And then Moses says the most interesting words maybe in the Bible. He says, don't be afraid. God is here to make you afraid. What? Are you dyslexic, Moses? Like, what happened there? Like, you missed things. What is he saying? God is here, and he wants to show off who he is, and you must revere him, but don't fear him. Don't run away from him. He's shown up to walk with you, to be with you. And what happened? Sin broke that. Okay, and here's the saddest part, I think, of the passage. Go to the questions. Let's just look at the questions that God asked. In verse 9, he says, where are you? And verse 10, he said, or Adam gives his response. Verse 11, God asked her another question. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Stop here real quick. Does divinity need to ask for information as if he's ignorant? No. The Bible describes that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. It describes God as omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. God is a spiritual being. He exists in space and time differently than we do. His existence allows him, the way he is, his being and who he is, to exist in all space in a different way than we do. His relation to space and time is different. But he can be described as being everywhere, which basically means what? In simplest terms, God's super good at hide-and-go-seek. So why is God asking questions? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat? Why is he asking these questions? All right, now this, here's the sad part. Probably, I think, the saddest part. These questions aren't for God. They're for Adam. I think right here, God is being tender to Adam. Notice he's not condemning him yet, accusing him yet. He's not being tough. I think he's being tender. He's not trying to drive Adam out. He's trying to draw him out. He's asking him questions. Why? Because he's saying, Adam, just confess. Just confess, man. Own up to it. Own up to it. You've sinned. You've stepped into brokenness. You've seen it. You don't look at your wife the same. You don't look at me the same. And God opens up the door of opportunity, inviting Adam just confess, right? Now put ourselves in this picture because that's how the Bible would describe what's going on here. This is not just what one man and one woman did. It's what we all do and under Adam have done. This is our story. Now think about you when you sin. When you're caught, what do you do? Do you confess? No. What do you do? We turn the title a little bit. We say, I'm not villain. I'm a victim. I only made this choice because the choice of somebody else. I only made this choice because the circumstances that I'm in. What do we do? We love when we are caught to do one thing. What's that? Blame. This is the condition, our spiritual condition. When God steps toward us, we step away again from him. 
It's going to take a radical work of God to change our story. Because even when he comes to us, inviting us to confess, we won't do it. This is why the Bible calls us spiritually dead. This is our condition. This is who we are. We're so broken spiritually, we can't see a way out. We have had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put us back together again. Why? Because the biggest thing in our way is our pride. We won't confess. Instead, what do we do? We play the blame game. All right, look at Adam do this. Verse 12, the man said, The woman, there's the first blame, whom you gave me. Who? Who you gave me to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. What is Adam saying? Hey, this woman's a mistake. Right? I know you saw me alone, and you said it's not good for man to be alone. I know that you saw that, and you said to yourself, I need to make a helper fit for him. We covered that last week. And then I I put you to sleep, Adam. You had no choice. I designed her, made her. Then I woke you up, showed her off, and you said, at last. Wow. 10 out of 10 is perfect. Look at how the tides have turned. And you know what Adam sounds like? Satan. That's what he sounds like. Satan who has just told mankind, God is withholding good for you. Go eat that tree because then you'll know good and evil. God's withholding from you. It's funny how in just a moment, Adam now sounds like Satan. God, it's your fault. You're withholding good. And this is what you've given me? It's her fault. Therefore, it's your fault. How broken are we? It continues. God will now give curses, judgments upon uh, humanity and the snake. And we're going to really unpack next week some of those judgments that fall upon the snake, the serpent. But I want you to see in this curse that God's going to bring out another form of our spiritual brokenness. We're apart from God. We can't own our sin. We can't see how bad the problem is. We're just falling off the wall. Nobody can fix us. And we won't even admit that we're broken. And it gets worse. The Lord said to the serpent, I'm in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and then it will extend out in the future. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 uses a very interesting word, the word enmity. What does that mean? It means aggression. It means opposition. It's used in the scriptures to describe warring nations. It's used in the scriptures to describe the uh, kind of the action or the emotion, the response before murder. What is he saying here? This is a part of our spiritual curse. Now you have a new enemy. His name is Satan. And you are going to be in a lifelong battle of death. We've moved away from God's protection. We've severed our relationship with God. We don't even see that it's broken. And as we moved out of the umbrella of his protection, now where are we? We are in the land of the enemy. And what is he seeking to do? To kill us. 
This storyline runs from this moment on all the way to the end of Scripture. We've seen this as we studied the Gospel of John. Jesus calls the Pharisees the, the primary antagonists of the Gospels, the ones who would pressure the Romans to crucify Jesus. He calls them sons of the devil. This is what he's talking about here. You are the offspring of your father, the devil. You are seeking to kill me. In the very end of the Scriptures, in the book of Revelation, there is the great red dragon who seeks to kill the church. Now we are in, you could say, mortal combat, if I can use a movie title. From here on out, moved away from the reign and rule of our benevolent creator. We moved out of his protection and we don't even believe we're broken. And as we've moved out of his house, now we're standing in the middle of the street about to get struck by Satan's car. That's where we're at pervasive brokenness. We're Humpty Dumpty. And the fall gets worse. Look at the next curse. Verse 17. I'm sorry. Verse 16. Can't forget the woman's curse. I'm so hard on the guys, right? Guys are like, come on, man. You were hard on me last week. All right? All right we'll give you a little bit here. A little respite, and then it'll get worse. Verse 16. And he said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain. This is the first time we've ever seen this word in the Bible. You now have pain in what? In childbearing and in pain. He uses the word again. You shall give or you shall bring forth children. Remember God said be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, build a family. Now God says that's still going to happen, but it'll be in pain. Family building will be in pain. Socially, as you grow, it'll be painful. And then look at this verse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does that mean? Your desire will be contrary to your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Let me give you a, a very helpful strategy when you're reading the Bible and something is unclear. The number one thing you should do is this. Call Pastor Larry. No, I'm just kidding. The number one thing you should do is this. Keep reading. Just keep reading. If this part's unclear, keep reading. You'll get clarity as you continue on in the storyline of God. And the thing is, we don't have to get very far. All we got to do is move one chapter over. Because these two words are used again. What God is describing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, your desire will be contrary to your husband, and he will rule over you. These aren't commands of God. God is not commanding, desire your husband in a contrary way, and rule over your wife. He's not saying that. He's describing, let me tell you how bad this partnership is going to get. I made you both in the image, in my image, in my likeness, to be partners, to subdue and have dominion over creation. You were given a task to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and your great partnership was able to achieve the mission I gave you. And now that's destroyed. Now your beautiful union is now filled with pain. Look at this, Genesis chapter 4. These same two words are used again, and look at how they're used. Look at verse 6. This is God speaking to Cain, Adam's son, before Cain kills his brother Abel. 
And God intercedes. He jumps in with questions. Again, God's inviting Cain to confess his anger. The sad part of the story is Cain won't do it. He won't own up to his problem. We see that spiritual condition in his dad is now passed on to him, and it's pervasive in us. We don't confess our brokenness. We try to hide it, run from it, or blame it on somebody else. And that's what Cain does. God is intervening in a moment. Please don't kill your brother. Cain doesn't listen. But look at how God describes what is happening in Cain. Verse 6, he uses the same words he's used in chapter 3. And the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Do you see God being kind and tender here? Search your heart. Don't you see what's missing? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, listen to this, sin, that's the subject, is crouching at the door. It is like a lion. Here are the two words. It des- its desire is contrary to you. That was that first word. But you must rule over it. Do you see what just happened there? God is describing the relationship between husband and wife in the same terms, the same words that he describes Cain's relationship to sin and sin's relationship to Cain. That's how bad things got. He's saying to the woman, here's what's going to happen. Sin is like a lion licking its chops, waiting to devour Cain. This will be your default position, Eve. And from here on out, you will not see your husband as partner, but you will want to subject him, subdue him, and dominate him. Your desire will be contrary to him. And your husband, his default position will not be to rule or lead with kindness, to take the first step in spiritual things. No. He will now treat you in a way that Cain should treat sin, to dominate, to subject, to subdue, to destroy. Did you see just the broken image here? What was a partnership, they're now our enemies. We are broken spiritually. We are broken socially. We're also broken professionally. And how we relate to work, our obligation in creation. Look at the curse given to Adam. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, there's that word again. In pain you shall eat of all that you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, these are new things in creation. These are intruders. They were not there before. Now they're there. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Here's the death sentence. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is going to be hard. Adam, you're going to have a case of the Mondays every day. Right? You will toil in your work in subduing creation as I have commanded you to do. Do you see how pervasive this is? Every sector of our life is touched by 
brokenness because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's not an area of your life that's not broken in some way. And the saddest part of our condition is we don't see it. Is when we're confronted with it, what do we do? We do the same thing Adam did. It's not my fault. We play the blame game. In the Crandall house, we say, who wins in the blame game? Nobody. Nobody wins. And this is hard. I, I have to admit, I think as gruesome and disappointing and just depressing as this part of the story is, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to come to grips with this. But it's essential. It's essential. And what saddens me is we have accepted a storyline that's a much easier storyline. The secular storyline will tell you a story much different than this. And let me tell you, the secular storyline, the storyline apart from God's Word, that's what I mean by the term secular, the secular storyline is a much easier sell. Much easier. I can sell that to you much easier. The secular storyline says this. If you do something, some behavior that is bad... There's really two responses to that. The first response is this. Well, maybe it's not bad. Maybe you're just acting out your desires. You're just living your truth. You're just being who you are. And, and there's that assumption that what I desire is automatically correct. The Bible storyline doesn't say that. The Bible storyline says, no, God's design, interpret your desires by God's design. And if they're contrary to God's design, you trust in him that he is the one who knows the, the pathway to true delight. Don't follow your desires if they're contrary to God's design. But the secular storyline will tell you it is, well, you're entitled to your behavior if it is your natural desire. Well, that's a much easier sell. Have what you want. That's pretty easy. Or it'll say this. Maybe your behavior is bad. Maybe it is out of line. Maybe it isn't good. But it's excusable. If you're not entitled to it, it's excusable. Why? Because you're the victim, not the villain. The reason you act in that bad behavior is because there's a broken system. It's because somebody has made a bad choice and they've hurt you. And that's why you're behaving in this way. Now, is it true? Is it true that we are victims? Absolutely. Is it true that that's damaging? Yes, absolutely. Is it true that that explains some of our behavior? Yes. Is it true that it excuses some of our behavior? No. But how much easier is it to sell that secular storyline that says... Your bad behavior, well, it's not bad because it's your desire. And if it is bad, it's excusable. You're entitled to it, and you could be excused for it. If I was selling you that, wouldn't that be easier? Sure. The sad thing is it's not true. It's not true. I'm sure it's much easier to hear, you, you know, the news from a doctor as you're sitting there in... The room, and he tells you, well, it's cold symptoms. It's just a cold. It's not cancer. Well, I would rather it be a cold than cancer. But if it's cancer, you better tell me. 
because NyQuil is not going to knock out my cancer. I need chemo. Right? If the truth is that I'm broken inside and I am a villain and not just a victim, you better tell me. If it's cancer, you better tell me. If it's pervasive and the center of who I am, it is my identity. I, I am a rebel. I am a sinner. You better tell me. Because I'm not accepting chemo if it's just a cold. But if you tell me it's cancer, then the next part that we we'll cover next week will make a lot more sense. Now, if you believe all that you have is a cold, guess what? Next week will feel like an insult. Not a remedy. Not a rescue. It'll feel like an insult. We need to let our pride die. We need to let our pride die and admit our brokenness. Admit we are Humpty Dumpty. We were on a high wall. We had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put us back together again. We need to admit that brokenness. And I don't think we understand how damaging unconfessed sin is. I'll tell you, I've seen it. As a young pastor, when I left Valley Bible Church, I felt God was calling me to do adult ministry in Southern California. And then I got there in Southern California, and things moved around and shifted, and I became the lead pastor at this church, much faster than I ever thought in a different situation. And as I'm jumping into this adult role with basically nobody over me to kind of walk me through these different things, I just jumped at every opportunity that was out there to do ministry. Not really having this kind of discerning ability to say, what is the best thing for me to do? What is maybe not the best thing for me to do? I was, just, I was young, I had energy, and any opportunity in ministry, I would do ministry. So we get this call from this nursing care facility that a woman wants to confess her sins because she knows that death is getting closer. So the receptionist calls me and says, hey, uh, nobody's currently in the office. Pastor Paul, will you do it? Absolutely. Like, this is, this is awesome, man. I'm totally excited about this. So I go to this nursing care, care facility, and, and, and I meet with this lady in, in this room. And they pull her in with, with her machines and everything like that. And she's sitting there, and I can tell, and I know she knows, that she doesn't have very, very much more days. And I can tell that she's really burdened by this sin. Whatever she has to say is physically and emotionally a burden on her. She can feel it. I can feel it. It's apparent. So she starts to confess her sin. And I'm not going to say the sin because that, that's a conversation for her and I to have. But I'll tell you, it was shocking. It was scary. I had to later call the authorities to make sure that I wasn't liable to hear this confession and they told me that it was beyond the statute of limitations for this certain crime because it was beyond like 50 years. So it was, a, it was I would tell it to you, but it, you couldn't eat lunch. It was that bad. And she's telling this to me, and I'm trying my best to have like a calm demeanor, right? As she's telling me this, this like train wreck confession is coming out. And, and, I, and I'm trying to encourage her, that, hey, the Bible says Jesus' brother wrote a letter and it's named after him. It's called the book of James. And in the book of James, in the fifth chapter, it says, confess your sins to one another. And you may receive healing if you have a sickness that is sin-related. And I told her, this is good. This is good. Right here, this is good. And then I remember telling her, there's a promise in 1 John 
that if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God wants to clean you up. Oh, and I can, she's resonating with it. I mean, she is just, she's in tears. I'm in tears. I feel like we're taking steps, man. Like, this is one of those really cool ministry moments where you're like, this is why I got in this thing, right? It's to have moments like these. And then I pull out Matthew chapter 5. I said, you know, Jesus says it's so important to confess our sins to those that we've offended, that he even says, delay your sacrifice. Be reconciled to your brother. And probably one of the saddest days I've ever had in ministry. It's like, it's like, it's like, I don't know if you've ever had a friend or family member who was an addict. And you have like an intervention and you get to that point, like where like, you feel like they're right there. And then they move away. And you get so sad. It's like I was watching this woman, probably in her late 90s, drinking a poison that was making her spiritually sick. And I got her to put it down and to stop drinking it for a moment. And I can see she's not getting sick anymore. And the moment I tell her, you've got to confess your sin to the one that you've offended, no matter how long. This is what God requires of you. It's like I saw her just take that poison again and drink it. Even though she's convulsing and spiritually just vomiting from it. Even though I can tell it's fatiguing her body. It's hurting her body. Even though there's these, 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 these psychological, physical, and spiritual just, just, danger, or just, just damage coming out of her. I couldn't get her to let go of it. And this, I mean, I don't think I'm even 30 years old yet. And I look at her and I say, like, I want you to experience God's blessing. But if you don't follow his design, you won't experience it. This area of your life, you'll continue to be sick. She just said, I can't do it. It's time for you to leave. So I left. I was so sad. What was happening there? I felt like I was God in the garden asking, where are you? Where is the sin? And what would she do? She couldn't confront it. We have to let our pride die and realize that will be the key to great spiritual life. And church family, if I'm honest, if I'm honest, and you told me I could be honest at the beginning, so I'm going to be honest again. I feel like at times that I agree that culture is running away from the things of the Lord, and they're experiencing the damaging effects of it. But it concerns me with how conscientious we are of it as an American church to the, to, the, to the missteps of American culture. And I think we should be. We should be. But we have to remember that we're broken too. And you know the great movements of God start with the church confessing, not the culture changing? Did you know the first great awakening started? Not because a dynamic preacher. It's because one teenage girl who was living a promiscuous lifestyle came into her church, confessed her sin, and it started a revival. And the pastor of that young girl was named Jonathan 
Edwards, probably the most dynamic and influential Christian preacher in American history. But he was a great preacher before she ever confessed. I've read his sermons. They're great before that moment, after that moment. But something broke when she confessed. And I think we need to be very careful of how critical we are of the culture around us who's moving in a godless direction. Of course they are. Where else would they be moving? And I think Christ's concern is first us. I think when God is looking at America, he calls our name first and says, Church, where are you? And I'll tell you, I want him to move. I want him to move. I love American Christianity because I'm an American Christian. But I hear all these reports of Christianity is waning and all these things are waning. And I think of Pastor Phil's words when I first came here at Valley when I was 25 years old. Phil told me this in his office. He said, Paul, you know, Jesus closes more church doors than culture. And I was like, wait, what? It's true. Read the book of Revelation. Who shuts the church doors? Who snuffs out the lampstand? Christ does. So we need to be very, very careful at the waning numbers of American Christianity and not think that maybe the problem is not culture, but the American church. Maybe we need to confess. And say, God, here I am. I come broken. I come wounded. I want to encourage you this week to pray a very dangerous prayer. Search my heart, God. Search it. Find it. Find the sin, the pride, and the anger in me. Let me not drink the poison of unconfessing. Maybe there's some painful phone calls this week that you'll make. Some embarrassing, shameful, vulnerable moments of conversation that you have this week. Maybe those are the seeds that need to be sown for God to do a great work in our nation once again. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We have had a great fall. Nothing can fix us, and we confess that. We confess brokenness. I am broken. And every area of my life is affected by my sin. So, Father, I confess. I confess right now. I want you to move so desperately. And if you have to move on me first, then Lord, move on me. Search my heart, oh God. Find any motive that is impure. Help me, Father, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Father, let not my critical gaze be one that's just outward, but one that's just also inward. To see where I have made missteps. Where I have fallen short. Jesus, I don't want you to snuff out Valley Bible Church. I want us to be a church that confesses that we are not the hero of this story. We're the villain. And we worship the great hero who redeems us and changes us. Christ, be with us in our prayer lives this week. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.